Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Alison Rudd. Alison, good afternoon to you. You are Liverpool champions. How does it feel now it's finally confirmed? Uh, it feels, feels nice. And I, I, just, I just love the way people congratulate the fans. So people, <laughs> I, I get a lot of congratulations, like I had something to do with it. And it's always that way. I remember when I was in Istanbul, I had about, I don't know, 800 texts from people saying, well done you. Yeah. And in the end, it goes to your head and you think, yes, I think it probably was a lot to do with me. <laughs> well, I thought, there I'm thinking I'm speaking to Alison who plays in goal. No, that's not right, obviously. Well, that's an added, that's just an added bonus, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you still celebrating? And how did you celebrate on Thursday? Well, um, I didn't really deep down want it to be that way. I wanted Liverpool to sort of actively be on the pitch when they won it by defeating Man City, but um, but it happened, and it I knew I knew I'd get a wave of emotion, and I did I did shed a tear. I then immediately put up this enormous champions flag that I'd pre-ordered, <laughs> breaking all the rules of superstition, but I I felt pretty secure, and put that out. It's enormous actually, and then um, weirdly, I went to bed and dreamt about my granddad and it was a really intense dream my granddad's dead and I'd found in the dream I found him and we were hugging and I woke up crying Aww. and I thought why have I why have I dreamt about my granddad and then I saw my flag it's in the, my bedroom window I saw it and I realized it was because my granddad's the reason I'm a Liverpool fan so my deep deep subconscious sort of went full circle and I was sort of talking to him about it in some way. And my granddad was, took football very seriously. He wasn't a joyful man. And I'm not a joyful fan, really. I, I'm not a, I don't sing at games and I don't mm. scream in delight. I, I take it very seriously. I was a very serious child about football. And um, so yeah, I, yeah, I haven't been jumping up and down and getting drunk. I've been sort of feeling nostalgic and happy, mm. but also a bit emotional as well. Yeah. And I think... I think fans are probably in two groups and I'm in the group that sort of goes into the nostalgia of it. I mean, you, you never feel like you did when you were a child. When I was a child, I would I would actually cry, sob, and I would belie- I believed I was the only person in the world who cared about the team, that no one else would hurt as much as me as if they lost. So it, it's, it, just, it just depends what your relationship is. So I, I didn't do a silly jig, but I... I've told the world I'm proud by flying my flag anyway. Oh, I love that, though. I love that you had a little dream about your granddad. That's lovely. Um, Gregor, what kind of a fan are you when we hear how Alison supports <laughs> just, Liverpool? How are you, what are you I like? Just, I was just, first of all, there, I was just picturing Alison really actually singing and, and supporting a team from the press box. That would be, that's a good image. <laughs> but, um what kind of fan was I? I was, I think I was the same. I was quite emotional as a kid. I would... Uh, as I said, I was always crying my eyes out if if uh, Celtic or Scotland lost, um, but that's been thoroughly drummed out of me after a career playing football for a living. So uh, I'm not I'm not a fan any longer. I'm afraid. Oh, <laughs> oh we need to get that back. No, <laughs> a fan of football rather than uh, any one particular team. Yes. There, I think. Okay. All right. Well, we'll let you off. Um, how are you? Other otherwise, you good, Gregor? I'm good. Yes, I'm just thoroughly enjoying this. Uh, festival of football now you know after a bit of a slow start I think it's actually you know there's there's so much to play for at both ends of the table uh, in the Premier League and in the Championship it's kind mm. of there's so much uh, still to be played for despite Liverpool's title being sealed now and uh, lots to look forward to so yeah really enjoying it. Well, talking of the championship coming up, we are looking at a devastating few days for Wigan Athletic and discussing the potential first managerial casualty of the restart. Lots for us to get through then. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We're going to start at a pulsating game at the London Stadium where West Ham gave their survival hopes a huge boost with an unexpected 3-2 victory over Chelsea. Andrei Yamalenko stepped off the bench to hit the winner as the Hammers shrugged off VAR controversy to complete a league double over Chelsea for the first time since 2003 when they were relegated from the Premier League. David Moyes' side had controversially been denied an opener from Thomas Suchek's strike, which was scrubbed out by VAR, but they battled back from Williams' penalty to lead when Suchek and Mikel Antonio netted either side of the break. Then a superb free kick from William looked to have shared the points until the break Breakaway saw Antonio tee up Yamalenko to cut past Antonio Rudiger to fire home in the 89th minute. Gregor, we'll come to you. This result, has this sort of turned the tide, do you think, for West Ham? It's certainly a huge result. I mean, after the after the results from the restart, which have been, you know, they've, they've looked organised and solid and and there's always been moments, kind of a, either an error or... Uh, a breakaway that's kind of cost them, and it looked again after the offside, you know, that the luck, luck was going to be against them again. Um, but they they showed a lot of fortitude and they went right to the end and and uh, and, and came back very well. And it's and it's a huge result because if you look at the run in now, um, there are some kind of winnable games. Um, Norwich are, are out of it now, although it pains me to say that. Uh, I think <laughs> I think they're looking doomed. So, you know, they've got Norwich and Burnley are still Burnley are in a great great shape, but they've got a bit of kind of and a bit of turmoil off the pitch as well. So they've got some some winnable games coming up now. Um, and that was and that game last night was not one of the games that they would have kind of earmarked to get three points from. So huge win for them. Huge win it certainly was. Uh, Alison, does this result confirm David Moyes is the right man to lead West Ham? Well, right now, it looks like he is going to pull off the escape, doesn't it? Um, he's getting a bit of a, a reputation for being one of those firefighter managers as opposed to one that builds a, a dynasty of his own. I I was at the game they lost uh, against Spurs and I have to say, he does. you cannot fault David Moyes' energy for the fight and the intensity with which he, he sort of emanates it. I do feel that at this stage of the season, if he's sort of giving off that aura of we can do it, we can do it, it, it does help. So I certainly between now and the end of the season, I think the board would be mad if there's another wobble to dump him. Um, he's, 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 got, he's, got, he's got all the right attributes. What's wrong with the team really is, 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 is more historical than that. So it's right now with what he's the um, the manpower he's got. He's got a fit Antonio, which I think is probably the most important thing for him. And then if he can just maintain that sense of discipline, I mean, the, the, one of the significant things other than Antonio's brilliance last night for West Ham was that they they just kept their concentration levels. There, there, there was some really good defending. From the players and that that has to come from the manager telling them they can do it and having a plan of action and convincing them to stick to it no matter what unfolds in the game and you know they could have crumpled with some of the decisions that went against them and they didn't and you know it it it, it was hard I think it'd be hard for anybody for a, a fan of any team other than perhaps Chelsea to not think actually good on them that was a t- that was a tough game Lesser teams would have crumpled, and they did not. They stuck at it, and um, the winning goal, while it did make Chelsea look slightly, slightly stupid, it was beautiful. So they've they've got yeah. talent in that team, and and I think I, I do to answer your question. I think David Moyes is 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 at the moment he's making mostly the right decisions with what he's got available. 
Gregor, when you are in a relegation battle, uh, as West Ham have been, how much, especially when you're in a run-in like this now with just a few games left, how much is, is mental stability important as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think it, you know, Alison's right. He is uh, someone who's done this before. He does, although he can come across as the kind of dour Scotsman, and I can say that because I'm, I won't, I won't say I'm dour, but I'm a Scotsman. Um, <laughs> he's, he is kind of, he does kind of do his best to instill, instill them with belief. But I think more importantly than that is the fact that they look well organised. And like you know, that sounds that might sound silly considering they lost to Spurs and Wolves. But as I say, they were that, those were games that were decided on moments. Adama Traore came on and won the game for Wolves. Uh, Spurs had a very fortunate goal. Uh, I think it was a Suchek own goal, and then Kane Kane broke away and scored uh, towards the end. So you know, th- those games were tight, were, were turned on on moments. And as I say, it looked like <laughs> they were going to get. They were going to be unlucky again um, last night, but they kept going and they kept going. And as Alison said, they are—they look well organised, and that you have to give boys credit for that. Well, like Alison said, there were moments where they could have crumbled against Chelsea. For the first time in a while on this podcast, we have some VAR controversy. We'll take you to the 34th minute. Thomas Suchek's goal was disallowed following a VAR review for an offside offence against Mikhail Antonio. Now, the on-field decision was toward the goal, but the VAR advised the referee that Antonio was in an offside position and directly in the line of vision of the goalkeeper, Kepper. Now, former Premier League referee Peter Walton has written in the Times today saying that uh, VAR Jonathan Moss took three and a half minutes to reach a decision. VAR should only be used to correct clear and obvious errors. That it took Moss so long to make up his mind shows that the incident was far from clear or obvious. Alison, should the goal have stood? Of course it should have stood. I... Oh, I'm trying. I, I fail every time not to, to utter a deep sigh. I apologise, uh, it, but it does this to me. It's the, the this is VAR of... you're talking about when you're sighing, isn't it? Not just us. It's not you, Nat. No. <laughs> yeah, every time I speak to you guys, it gets to me, you know. But no, a VAR. If it has any role at all, it's to stop things, uh, miscarriages of justice that everyone can see on telly at home. What you don't want is a clear goal to be ruled out through um, human error that does not have access to a replay, whereas everybody at home can see what what should have happened and it makes uh, officials embarrassed and the game look stupid. That's the only advantage to having a review system. nobody, Nobody at any point has ever said, oh, we really want to be able to give one man in a room the chance to mull something over for half his life. That is not what it's about. And uh, no way, uh, if pre-VAR, I would have thought, thought, you know, 99 out of 100 officials would have allowed that goal to stand. It's, 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 it's perfectly clear, even if you want to review it and review it and look at it again, that uh, Kepper was not impeded by Antonio's head lying on the floor. His own, his own defender was muscling around yes. in front of him, being yeah. stupid. So it was, it was, A, it was... It was a perfectly valid goal. And B, this is a misuse of um, technology and the ability to have replays. Because all you do is you, you, you can imagine being in that room, looking at the monitor and thinking, oh, well, you know, I suppose technically, technically his head, he can score with his head and his head's, you know, he's probably offside. I mean, you can get completely wrapped up in this. And it's, this is not what football is about. It's It's not about fine print and being able to look at something a hundred times just in case. It's about the spirit of the game and what it what it feels like at the time. VAR is only there to stop, as I say, massive, massive miscarriages of justice, not these little minuscule things that nobody would get cross about. No, nobody in the world would have been cross if VAR didn't exist and that was given as a goal. That's the point. That's 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 the rule of thumb, surely. Gregor, do you agree? First of all, I've missed hearing Alison uh, being <laughs> exasperated about VAR. That's, it's good to have that back. Um, I do agree, but I think clear and obvious is gone. That was supposed to be the that was supposed to be the the purpose for for VAR. That was supposed to be when it when it intervened. But that is completely that's been completely lost. Any kind of decisive moment, a goal, is that all subjectivity has been lost. 
So uh, I'm not saying that's right, but that's just the way it is. I don't think... Uh, I think the clear and obvious thing has completely disappeared, and I don't know, really know why that is. So, I mean... I, I think it should have been a goal, as 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 Alison said. If if someone's analysing it for so long, that's that is not the spirit of the game. But again, it's we're split. This is something that people are split into two camps over. Some people want it to be, you know, they say, how can offside be anything but object objective? I mean, without a kind of change of the rules, I don't I don't see how that's going to change personally. Mm. Well, what about? Putting a time limit on VAR reviews, that's something that, that Peter Walton has also suggested. Would you be in favour of that, Alison? Um, well, it's as a halfway house, making it slightly better, yes. Only because um, it might stop ridiculous decisions being made, i.e. when it takes um, a couple of minutes to draw all the lines and to, to prove that somebody's bottom is offside. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, if it, if it speeds speeds up for general enjoyment of the game, tick. Yes, that's fine. And also speeds it up because if it's so marginal, you need to draw fifty lines and think about it for for half an hour. Then it there can't be an issue. But I think ultimately, um, if you if you impose a time limit, you're sort of accepting the system. And I would say the system is wrong. So I'd. I'd it's a, it would be a partial a partial help, but I really want I really want why we have VAR to be thought about again from you know from from scratch we scratch it all and then start again about what we've learned from it, what's good and what's bad, and have it have have a completely new way of looking at, at replays. Just from what you've just said there, then Alison, what good can you take from VAR right now? <laughs> well, like I say, obvious miscarriages of justice. Uh-huh. If 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 you know if the people see the truth and it is denied them, then they, they they will be upset. No one wants that. And I think if referee on the field of play would like to be able to see something again, because and and, and they often have very good reason to need to see something again. Um, you know, the, something obscuring their view, or there was a a distraction, or they were incorrectly placed for an incident and their assistants aren't sure. I think I think it's good to, for them, for the referee, who has, who has to, the responsibility of the match. It's his match, he's in charge. Rather than deferring to somebody who isn't there and hasn't, you know, as I've said before, got the pace of the game and understand what's going on. And also, the other thing is, <laughs> I'm sure I don't think I have said before, People in football always bang on about consistency and players and managers managers will say, all I want, all I want is a bit of consistency from the officials. Mm. If you've got one game in which two different referees are making decisions, that is ultimately lack of consistency. So I think if reviews are used, it should be the referee because then he can apply not only what he sees on the monitor, but he can apply his interpretation of how the match has unfolded and all the various factors that nobody knows unless they're there in the middle of the pitch, part of part of the action, which a referee is. So I would I would say there's a possible, you know, it's it's not ridiculous to keep part of it, but as long as you give more power back to the the match official. See, I had to ask Gregor, didn't I? I had to ask <laughs> Alison if there were some positives to take from VAR. Uh, but let's let's focus on the positives, perhaps, for West Ham. It was their first point since the restart. We've mentioned they have had defeats to, to Wolves and Tottenham. And, and Gregor, you did mention some of their remaining games. It's Newcastle away first, then Burnley at home, Norwich away, Watford at home, Manchester United away, and Aston Villa at home. When you consider all of those fixtures... Gregor, are you positive that, that West Ham can stay up? Positive might be pushing it a little bit, but I think Ooh. I think part of the the reason that was such a big a big win is because I mean the teams below them really do look in dire straits. Villa Villa are are I think I think really the bottom three currently is, is most likely to go down now. Uh, because you know Villa have shown very little since the restart. Bournemouth are gonna come on to her in dire straits. And Norwich look all look all but dim now. So, I mean that's why it was such a big win. I, I, I forgot about Newcastle before Burnley and Norwich. But you know these next three games they could, real you know realistically create a bit of of daylight between themselves and the mm-hmm. bottom three. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, certainly hugely, hugely positive for them. And I, I just think some positive performances too. I mean, Alison said Antonio, he's, you know, there are times when he kind of, he can run the ball out of play, but there are other times where he looks unplayable. And Jared Bowen as well, he's just, I was I was so surprised it took him this long to, to be signed by a Premier League team uh, because he just, almost every game he plays in, or he played in for Hull, he either scored or he created a goal, or often yeah. both. And he's and he just kept he just started where he where he left off with Hull. He, he always does that, you know. He's he's just got that, that kind of touch, that made his touch. So there are yeah, definitely some positives going forward like that. And as I say, with uh, with him looking well organised and well drilled at the back, um, I think it does look a lot better for for West Ham than it than it did twenty four hours ago. Well, some West Ham fans may well be feeling positive after that result against Chelsea and we, we will talk about Bournemouth in more detail but of course Alison you were at Bournemouth Newcastle this week uh, their next game as I was saying for West Ham is away to Newcastle how tough a challenge from what you saw at Bournemouth will Newcastle be do they look rejuvenated in some way well it de- I mean it depends which Newcastle turn up the Newcastle <laughs> I watched at Bournemouth last night turn up then um then that's a really tough game for anybody. I was, I have to say, it might be the best I've ever seen Newcastle play in my entire life. Oh. And I'm not trying to be, you know, I, I honestly can't think of a time where I've been as impressed by them. They, Apart from conceding a very, very late goal, um, it was almost perfect. They were, their attitude was amazing. They They just looked three inches taller than... Bournemouth, they looked fitter, they they were so vocal with each other, they looked like a team um, about to clinch something really important. They looked incredibly well motivated, uh, well balanced, there was oh, there was everything. They had they, they, were, they did the dirty things, they did the creative things. Maybe it's playing in orange, maybe they should be allowed to play in orange all the time. <laughs> Ditch the stripes, they've not been lucky for them, have they? So, oh my um, goodness, play in orange, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> play in orange and and become a different team altogether. They no, they were they were they were extremely impressive. But of course, um, Bournemouth are hopeless. So so maybe maybe uh, West Ham can feel that you know they're not going to be that bad. But um, no, they were. I, I honestly, they were they were. I would suggest people if they haven't seen it, just watch the whole thing. Just watch the whole thing. It's great fun. Oh. I'm sure I've heard that that slogan somewhere. The future's bright, the future's orange. But anyhow, um, back on to, to West Ham, Gregor. If David Moyes does keep them up, do you think he will deserve the time and the money to sculpt his own squad? It's a bit like the conversation we had last week about Steve Bruce. You know, it's, yeah. I think West Ham just need to kind of decide or rediscover who they are. The, the, the way you know, there's again, there's so many issues. In the boardroom and the way the clubs run and the the recruitment policy and you know any time that they they have a blip the stadium becomes another kind of cross on their back so it's it, there's there's a lot of issues there and, and you know if if they want to have a manager who is very likely to keep them in the Premier League and survive in kind of mid table maybe slightly higher. Uh, then David Moyes would be a, a sound appointment in that regard. But if they want to, I don't know, show a little bit more ambition and uh, just, like I say, re- sort of rediscover their identity and, and um, a slightly more exciting way of playing football, which a lot of fans now crave, uh, then they might have another decision to make in the summer. Mm. I mean, when you think back to when they moved to the London Stadium, Alison, there were big promises about what that would bring for West Ham, the the possibility of European nights. Can you really realistically see David Moyes delivering that? <sighs> There's another I, side. I, I, I know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think you can judge Moyes in isolation on this one. I, no. He's not had the... Even if he keeps West Ham up, I, I don't think enough supporters are going to be enthusiastic about him being the person that the club build around or the, the man who's allowed to build a, build a team and, and, and forge its direction. And it's, it's a very fragile ecosystem, the, the West Ham, with its stadium and everything. It's, 
I think he's capable, David Moyes, of doing it. And I think he has proven there's something, there's some, isn't there something admirable about managers who just keep plugging away, even though they know they're not popular? I just think that's, <laughs> I kind of like that. And it is possible to win people over slowly. Um, and if they, if if West Ham were able to, if you took the good things from what they did against Chelsea, and there was a lot that was good, and I think probably most importantly was it was entertaining. If he could keep that going with a bit of dosh, I think he might slowly win more and more over. It's just not the sort of club where the people are patient, though. Mm. So it, it's I, you know, looking at it sort of academically. I think yes, give him a chance, but I just I just think there's so many things stacked stacked against him really. And it is difficult for managers as soon as they start getting labelled as being good at some things and not good at others. It, that's it's sort of it's sort of like they sort of start running through sta- sand in trying to prove themselves. And you sort of always feel at a club like West Ham that the the owners will pull the rug the minute they decide for whatever their own reasons are. It might be expedient not to to back a manager to def- or to de- deflect something that's happened on a business level to blame the manager for or whatever. It's a complicated political club. So, but I mean, the crucial thing and the reason he ought to be given a nice big bottle of bubbly at the end of the season. <laughs> how embarrassing would it be if they were playing in the championship in that? In that massive arena, it would be awful. They would be a laughing stock. So he has, if he keeps them up, he has earned the right to do something there. Definitely, I just don't. Th- I just don't think there'll be the will that he needs to get that over the line. Then. So it was a disappointing night for Chelsea in their pursuit of a top four spot. And this morning, fingers are being pointed firmly at Marcos Alonso and Antonio Rudiger for their part in West Ham's winner. Alonso failed to track back, whilst Rudiger was accused of not doing enough to stop Yarmolenko cutting inside on his favoured left foot. Gary Neville on TV last night accused Rudiger of not knowing that Yarmolenko was left-footed and wasn't impressed with Alonso either. He said Marcos Alonso is level with him when he's referring to Yarmolenko at the point where that counter-attack starts and he doesn't bother run back as fast as you can when your team lose the ball you learn that age six strong words which we're quite used to from from gary neville uh, do, do you agree with what he has to say on that gregor yes and no i think he he the first thing to say is that alonso is not gary neville so he has a different outlook when that ball breaks when uh, declan rice kind of hooks the ball on and uh, you know chelsea are going out to you know, going to try and get the winner, and his his thought is about staying in around the box for when it comes back in, or at least being an option for when Chelsea win the ball back and he can, you know, he's wide left. So I just think that in his in that 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 stage of the game and that kind of phase of play, his thought process was more about attacking and trying to get a winner, and he completely switched off from from seeing the danger that Yarmolenko posed. Um, and clearly, it looked, it, it, he could have. It looked like he could have broken his neck a little bit more to to run back afterwards. Uh, Rudiger, I think, I think he just he just he got his angles wrong. He overcommitted. He went he went too far. I don't I don't think it's true that he doesn't know he's a left footer. I think he just he thought about getting his body between the goal and the ball, and he overcommitted in one direction. And once you've done that, and the the, the forward has the initiative. It's very hard to recover and change direction and, and get a block in. So Neville was typically strong, yes, but I think uh, Alonso deserves more of the more criticism than, than Rudiger does. Mm. In, in that sense, when you talk about the defensive errors from Chelsea, did they allow West Ham back into the game last night, Alison? Or are you actually being a bit harsh on West Ham by saying that? I think Chelsea looked tired. I would say Alonso's get out is that. Uh, he's probably uh, playing fullback in a back four isn't his best position, and he'd been on the whole game. And Yarmolenko just come on, and he probably just knew he couldn't catch him. Maybe I mean he, you know, maybe he just felt too tired at that point. And it, you know, you've got you've got five subs. Uh, Frank Lampard used them very well in the FA Cup, but he, he maybe didn't use them as well. Uh, at the London Stadium, uh, I 
The interesting thing, I think, in terms of why that game was lost by Chelsea is Frank Lampard said afterwards, you can, with my team, see a blip coming. And he it was though he was admitting he knew this was the night there was going to be another disappointment. It's as though they, he knows his team uh, are promising and can sometimes deliver and sometimes look quite excellent, but he doesn't quite believe he's got formula right for it to be a week in week out reliable performance and so he's constantly juggling is Lampard to trying to get get it right for you know their level of tiredness fitness and who the opposition are and he he didn't get that quite right but I would I would rather say yes there were two defensive errors but um the way the way Antonio Cushioned the ball. He's a really good target man. The way he cushioned the ball, laid it off, made the run. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't knock that. That's proper skill. That's proper old-fashioned football. And he, his name was on the team sheet. The Chelsea defenders knew exactly what threat he would pose. That they failed to deal with it is, is to West Ham's credit. So I would say West Ham, West Ham won it rather than Chelsea threw it away. Well, that win for West Ham pushes them up to 16th and three points clear of the bottom three, which includes Eddie Howe's Bournemouth, who had an evening to forget being swept aside 4-1 at home to Newcastle. The win included stunning goals from Miguel Almiron and Valentino Lazaro to inflict a crushing defeat on Howe's side, who grabbed a late consolation through Dan Gosling. Now, Alison, we've already touched on the fact that you were at the game. We've talked about how good Newcastle were, but how bad were Bournemouth? Yeah, they were pretty dreadful, actually. Um, they, they were off the pace. They were visibly not that mentally strong. Didn't have a lot of self-belief. They, they were bullied. They, they, they appeared to be bullied by the uh, positivity of Newcastle. But uh, Newcastle were very energetic and at them. And they didn't quite know how to how to respond to that. And, it, you know, it's interesting because afterwards Eddie Howe said they're really struggling. He admitted they're struggling that without having home fans there to give the team a lift when... Because, they, you know, they, they conceded very early in the game. It's the fourth minute. And um, if, if, you, if you concede that early, then, you know, two things can happen. The home crowd can start getting on your back or they can, they can be supportive and, 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 and urge you on and, you know do their version of, never mind chaps, you can get through this. But the, So the fact that Eddie Howe's admitting he needs that help to give the team the confidence to keep going for the next 86 minutes is, I don't know, he's got a point. He's got a point that the no crowds does, does um, affect the smaller clubs and the struggling clubs more because the way you get a, a surprise result is often because um, the fans are so fantastic and, and provide some sort of intimidating backdrop and, and make and make players feel you know they're they're taller, better, faster than they actually are. But the fact that he admits that he ne- he needs that as part of the package to to try and climb out of of this precarious position he's in, it doesn't doesn't say a lot for his ability to motivate them mm. because it did feel early goal oh you know again yet again what are we going to do it's it, it didn't they didn't look like they'd been told no matter what happens to you you can get through this they did they, they i suppose it's a very very long-winded way of saying they look fragile i just think that the fact that they lost you know they gifted a newcastle a goal within five minutes you just yeah. that's the, that's the worst thing that can possibly happen to a team when they're down there and i've you know I've been in that situation, and Eddie Howe as well looks looks absolutely crestfallen. He looks like you know he does not know which way to turn. Uh, uh, you know, Sam Maximin twisted up <laughs> to the right side of Roma's defence uh, for the second. Um, no one really. Then you know, then it looks like confidence fell away. No one, no one wanted to to close down Almirón for the for the third, and the fourth was like the the kind of the first run in the striker's playbook. It was like just a simple run in behind Aki and slipped through. They, just, they looked they just looked completely devoid of any of any confidence or belief uh for most of that game I thought. So 
I mean, it's it's so it's so very hard to 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 turn that round. I mean, Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe's been there a long time. He knows these players. Um, it just looks very hard. It looks it looks like it's impossible for him to to get a to get a reaction from them now. Alison, it's interesting, as Gregor mentioned, you know, five minutes into the game, they've conceded. Did it look as though their heads dropped as soon as that happened? Or did they show any fight at all? No, yeah, I mean, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite... They looked, uh, they looked like the kid who doesn't want to go to school because they're being bullied. And mum says, look, if it happens again, <laughs> what you do is you just... You just Look them in the eye and say, oh, bullies are just very weak, weak people who are struggling in life. And then hold your head up high and, and, and carry on, find a friend. And so they've gone into the school playground and they're immediately bullied and they've forgotten everything mummy said and they just want to go home. They just, they just, they're just oh, not coping very well with being in the position they're in. They're not. They're just not. They're, there's a collective lack of belief there, I think. And, and who can blame them? I mean, have you seen their running? I oh, mean, I wrote yes. in my piece, oh, you know, there are, what did I say? There's no respite. Next up, it's Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur, Leicester, then Man City. But then their last two games are Everton and Southampton. It, they, there are no... <laughs> if, if Newcastle were, if we're now looking at a list where they hadn't played Newcastle yet, you'd say, well, maybe they could get something against Newcastle. <laughs> and then they were com- comprehensively outplayed against Newcastle so I don't I know football doesn't work that way but you've got to say there's something something radically has to change for them to get mm. anything against any of those clubs I just listed are they doomed then Alison are they down in your eyes I don't really want them to be but um I mean who do, who dislikes Bournemouth I mean and they are one of the you know, I think we forget I think mainly mainly we forget because Leicester um, pulled off the ultimate fairy tale, but Bournemouth are a are a fairy tale club, and they're a club that rose through the ranks under Eddie Howe. He did a great job, and then when they were promoted, um, people said, "Oh, well, they won't stay there. They're very small." But they did, they did, and he's and, and on on that basis alone, you think it's a lovely story, and they're a well-run club, and. You know, it's a tiny stadium, but they make it work. And you would like them. You would like them to rediscover what it was that gave them that resilience to defy the odds and keep going. But I suppose everything, everything, everything is in cycles, and that sense of um, togetherness that, that they probably and you know put together there the, the fact they you know they know they're a long-term project I mean that, that must help a lot knowing that you your manager's going to be there the following season and the season after that and there's a family atmosphere and it gives Eddie Howe the power to only sign players that he feels he can work with they're all that's all good and well but it's it's just run out it, the, mm. everywhere everyone around them is getting savvier and richer and more ruthless and they've sort of in a strange way they seem quite old-fashioned suddenly I think well after the game Eddie Howe insisted that he does not need the board's explicit blessing to stay in the job he said I don't need assurances the club will do what is best for them we have a very open and honest relationship if the club felt it wanted to go in a different direction that's up to them my emotional energy is not in doubt Gregor what do you think should happen with Bournemouth? Should they be making a change? I think if they want to have a shot at survival, then the answer is yes. But I think if you're looking at the bigger picture, um, Eddie Howe has Eddie Howe has done such a, an extraordinary job there. Um, I think you know. I think they kind of need to gauge gauge his mood as well. I think he did look kind of crestfallen, and I think they need to see what he you know he said that he's. He's a, he's emotionally invested in it, but he doesn't he doesn't really look at it anymore. I think he looks completely lost, devoid of ideas now. You think, and I think his team doesn't look like his team anymore. It's it used to be it used to be such a fast fast counter attacking team, uh, really dynamic. They pressed well. Uh, you know they've always had kind of holes at the back. <laughs> they've, they've you know they've played with some players who kind of come up from League One. And I, and I, and again, you know, you look at their you look at their team, and it used to be, 
Harry Arthur, uh, Simon Francis, Cook, Daniels. There's a lot of people who, who, as I say, have been part of that journey, and they sort of that that was almost their identity. And the people who came in were kind of supplementing that. And there has been an issue with with the recruitment. They've they've they seem to have developed and you know, cultivated this relationship with Liverpool, where they they take their their castoffs and for about forty million pounds in total, and and none of them have, have done anything. Harry Wilson's scored a few free kicks and and been not bad on loan this season, but Jordan Ibe, Dom Solanke, Brad Smith, been a disaster. And 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 you know I don't I don't think the recruitment has has been good enough either. So once once those that core of the team has been transitioned out, then you were reliant on the recruitment and it's not been good enough. Mm. Recruitment's not been good enough. So that may be one of the reasons as, as to why things are not working for Eddie Howe right now. Uh, Alison, has he earned the right to go down and, and try and bring them back up again? I don't, well, yes, definitely. I don't know for sure, but I suspect if you um, did a poll of fans, they, they would say they'd be okay with going down and and uh, Eddie Howe being the one to bring them back up. I mean, they, I think they'd be naive to think it would be that easy. Uh, the championship is just gets more and more competitive and unpredictable, and um, he might find it hard, even with that group of players <laughs> in the championship. But I think, I just, I do think there's a lot of goodwill towards Eddie Howe. And it was, you know, I only saw him on the Zoom chat. It would be nice to be able to do the old-fashioned press conferences. But even on the Zoom chat, he, you know, I've spoken to a lot of managers who are on the brink of being sacked and they go sort of glassy-eyed and you can tell they're speaking almost rehearsed lines and their head somewhere else and they're a bit worried. He didn't look like that, Eddie Howe. He obviously does have a good relationship uh, with the board and I, if I had to put money on it, I would say they're not going to dump him and hope for hope to get in someone who can be a firefighter. But um, now I'll be proved wrong, won't I? I just don't get that feeling that they're going to do that. I think if they were going to do that, they'd have done that a few months back before lockdown when Eddie Howe actually admitted he, he might be running out of ideas and they stuck with him then. Um, so I think I think they will they will stick with him. Ironically, I think because their running is so difficult that that's almost now a positive. Maybe you know it, it frees you up a tiny bit to know that you're really now not expected to win any of those games, and maybe that'll allow the players to just rediscover a bit of urgency and, and self belief. Gregor, can managers go stale? Uh, and I'm. With with Eddie Howe, it's only Wickham's Gareth Ainsworth that's been in the same managerial position longer than the Bournemouth boss. We know at Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson would obviously attempt to revamp the squad. And if that didn't work, he would change his number two. Do you feel that maybe Eddie Howe needs to change things up coaching-wise? Because maybe it's not working and he's become a little stale with the group that he has right now. I mean, it certainly looks like things have gone stale. But I, I mean, as I say, I know... Knowing that he he does actually every single summer uh, and throughout the season, in fact, he's always looking at how the, any little improvements he can make and any little tweaks to yeah. his coaching, to the to the the preparations, to everything about the football club. He's you know he's kind of the all-seeing eye over that that club, and he's built it from 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 nearly falling out of the football league to a Premier League club. It's kind of was well established and and pretty to watch, but I think it can go. I have to say, I've never played for a manager for long enough to know whether <laughs> whether it can go stay like that because it doesn't happen very often. I just think, I, I honestly think that them losing the core of of the of the players who who've been so successful for them, and I, I can see you know if you look if you do look at the recruitment, you can see that he's kind of almost tried to replace that with like a core of English players. He signed Lloyd Kelly from Bristol City. Uh, Jack Stacey from Luton this year. Every year there's a there's a couple. David Brooks, Chris Mepham from from Brentford. You know, paying decent figures figures and fees for these these young kind of up and coming British players. But the, I think Brooks aside, they've not really done enough, and it's not quite enough for the Premier League now. So 
Um, it's tough to watch, and it is it's it's tough to to fight your way out of, to be honest. Before we move on, Alison, you wrote in your piece on Bournemouth how Newcastle will help were helped by the new drinks breaks in the Premier League games taken in the middle of each half. What was happening in the game for you to think that it helped Steve Bruce's side? It was well. It was there was just this brief um, research. I mean, resurgence is too strong a word, maybe. But yeah, were, Bournemouth did actually summon a few attacks, and at that very point, um, the first drinks break came. I don't know what Steve Bruce would have said, but I'm pretty sure he would have said something along the lines of, uh, uh, "Let's restart like we, you know, like we started the match. Let's not let them get into any sort of rhythm." But it was more a case of. It was. It came at a bad time for, for Bournemouth. But that's only with hindsight, because you know, looking looking across the whole match, that was the only period where they looked really like they were, had some sense of adventure. So it, it was just a. It was just an interruption. Now it could have been in the old days an interruption because there was an injury or some sort of contentious decision. But you wouldn't be able to get the team together in the same way and and just repeat a message so it, it clearly allowed Steve Bruce to reiterate what he'd said before they took to the field and I think if he'd been Eddie Howe at that point it would have been really hard to know what to say because uh, they were although they were they they um they'd had a couple of forays forward they hadn't done much it wasn't like he had much to grab hold of and say, look how well you just did in the last 10 minutes. It was it was a fleeting glimpse of, of something positive. And I think he'd have much preferred to have just let them generate their own momentum, if that was at all possible, rather for them to have a break and then remember how rubbish they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, there have been some managers who've been quite vocal in their opposition to the drinks break. Gregor, what do you think about it? Are you a fan of it? Can you understand those managers that don't like it? And do players really need it? You know, I can understand why it was introduced because I think the Premier League and, and clubs are looking for any way to mitigate against the, the, the against injuries and the, the sheer workload that's going to be placed on players now in this in this month. So I can understand why it was introduced, but I can also see why it does interrupt play, and if teams in a, a teams in kind of full flow, it's 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 an interruption to that. So I think it's fine that it's here between now and the end of the season, but it has to be thrown in the bin afterwards. Hello, I'm Stig Abel. I'm Asma Mir, and you can hear our breakfast program on Times Radio. Join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 6am to 10am on Times Radio. Know your times. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Now to a sad and shocking story from the Championship. Wigan Athletic entered into administration on Wednesday, the first professional club to do so in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and are set to be handed a 12-point penalty by the EFL. Administrators in charge of Wigan say several parties have expressed an interest in buying the Championship club and must now prove they have funds of at least £10 million to progress in negotiations. Paul Stanley, Gerald Krasner and Dean Watson from Begbie's Trainer have been appointed as joint administrators. In fact, I was speaking to Paul Stanley this morning. Uh, He is hopeful that they can get a buyer and that they will be able to save Wigan. But it certainly sounds like a very, very desperate situation that they are in. He was even putting out a plea to Wigan fans to help if they can in any way contribute to just pay expenses, for example, for the rest of this season. Now, a deal to sell Wigan from the Hong Kong-based International Entertainment Corporation to the next leader fund was only formally completed on June the 4th, with an investigation likely to follow on on how a club can enter administration just four weeks after a sale. This story caught us all by surprise, Gregor, and I know you've been writing about it in The Times. How on earth has this happened? Um, it's it's pretty hard to get your head around it. Uh, the there's two things really. The takeover that happened on June fourth was between two Hong Kong based companies, both of which were owned by the same man, majority owned by the same mm-hmm. man, a, a man called Stanley Choi, who's actually a, a kind of high stakes poker player as well. Um, so. I think, and and that 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 uh, a memorandum of understanding for that sale was first entered to into back in November. So, you know, there's there's a few things that are raised by that, and the first is that they're, they're trying to sort of use suggest that COVID nineteen is a is a reason for the sale uh, when COVID wasn't really a thing in November. Uh, they've also cited Brexit. They cited the. Uh, failure of the club to reach the Premier League. I think the wording in, in their statement was a uh, misalignment of expectations. So it really looks like a year after buying the club from Dave Whelan, they thought the club is, as most championship clubs do, is losing close to a million pounds a month. Uh, we don't really think that we've got much chance of getting Wigan to the Premier League. It's not as easy as we thought. Let's sit and train a motion, uh, set in motion a process of shutting up shop and you know it's it's very difficult to know how how this could have been prevented because as I say when the transaction took place last month uh, from one company to another it was the same man who owned the company so it looks like he's basically rearranging his his, pro, his kind of uh, his portfolio but the thing that happened then eight days ago on June 24th is someone who was previously a minority shareholder in the new company, became majority shareholder. So at that point, someone who is really an unknown became owner of the club. And at that point, there was no more funding Mm. for the club. And that's really why they've had the administration. So with all that being said, Gregor, the the EFL have come in for a lot of stick in this situation. But it sounds as though you're suggesting that perhaps they wouldn't have expected this to happen because the original majority owner of this other company that obviously owns Wigan did have the proof of funds originally. Is that what yeah, you're suggesting? I, yeah, but I think he probably would have had to go through the whole process again and there's no reason why he wouldn't have the proof of funds. Yes, because he's transferred it but he still owned the other company. Yeah, so that yeah. first, the first part is is really, I don't think we can really lay any blame at the EFL's door for that because it's it, it, although it changed hands, it changed hands between the same man, <laughs> yes, essentially. Yes. So the thing that you need that needs some scrutiny is the fact that it, it could be signed off that somebody else became owner of that company and owner of therefore owner of Wigan Athletic Football Club mm. uh, very easily, uh, it seems, or too easily. Um, but again, the EFL, the EFL. <laughs> This is a kind of becoming an age-old sort of issue now. The EFL are a members' club. They they create the the clubs create their own rules, and so the owner they they have been since since Bury since Bury the demise of Bury a year ago they have been in discussions about changing the ownership rules and part of that is the the owners and directors test, but it's hard to see how this how even a, a more stringent owners and directors test would necessarily have 
prevented this from happening. It is easy to lay the blame at the EFL's door. and But the, the EFL's argument is that the test is to ascertain whether A, the person has has the means and and that they're suitable, i.e. they're not a convicted criminal. It's not. There's no way of them ascertaining whether they have the capability, whether they're actually mm-hmm. good enough to do it, or how are they supposed to know that what looks like has happened is they've just said, we're not. We're no longer funding the club. They don't. They, you know, the the AFL could never know that that was going to happen. So, it's very hard for Wigan, and it's it's. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, the thing is, that this sort of illuminates is that when someone when foreign investors buy football clubs, and not just foreign investors. Any investor who is not, uh, which you know, Dave Whelan was like a relic of of from the past. He was a, a a local guy who owned JGB Sports, became very wealthy, bought his local club, took them from the third tier, the fourth tier, even to the Premier League, won the FA Cup. That's the kind of old old school kind of fairy tale, fairy tale. Everyone says that's lovely, but when uh, a, a a kind of a consortium from Hong Kong comes comes along. Um, and they don't have that same attachment to the club. It feels like you are always taking some sort of risk in allowing them to to take to what's going to be essentially an investment for them. It just sounds like a desperately dire situation, obviously, at Wigan. And there's a real fear about their future. They are 14th at present with six, to, six games to go. If they finish outside the bottom three, then the 12-point deduction if not appealed, would apply to the 2019-20 table. But if they're relegated, the deduction would apply at the start of the 2020-21 League One campaign. Administrator Gerald Krasner has warned that Wigan could be the first of a number of EFL clubs to go bust. He says, it's my personal view that there are a number of clubs in the lower divisions, Leagues One and Two, that may not survive by coming back. There's the possibility at least one championship club may seriously be thinking about doing the same. Krasner insists there is enough cash flow until the end of the season, but no more, having also reduced Leeds' debts from $103 million to $24 million as chairman back in 2004, so that may be why the name is familiar to some. He says he already has 12 interested parties and hopes at least two serious bidders will emerge. He claims the starting price for Wigan, as I mentioned before, is £10 million because of their liabilities and has told all interested parties to provide proof of funds. Alison, uh, we heard what, what Gerald Krasner there had to say about the future of Leagues 1 and 2 clubs. Are we concerned that other EFL clubs may suffer the same fate as, as Wigan are suffering right now? Yeah, well... No, not exactly the same fate, because as, as Gregor has, has very eloquently explained, this is a very specific set of peculiar problems at Wigan. Um, and that that won't be the reason that other clubs um, face administration. It will be simply that they can't cope with, with the problems imposed by COVID and their cash flow issues. Um, so at some point, it's going to be, there are lots, I think there's a lot ahead problem-wise on this because if you if they go ahead and deduct points for Wigan and then a raft of clubs go into administration because of um, cash flow problems it, what, what they're gonna are they gonna have like what five ten fifteen clubs all <laughs> all being deducted points the the the, the, the league table is gonna it's gonna look ridiculous I mean it, it, I, I also I'm what I mean I've got a soft spot from Wigan but it really grates that that you who who is punished by the twelve the deduction. It's mm. it's not the owner that's that's decided or made a mistake. They have no emotional attachment to the club, and they just want out because it went. It was an adventure that went wrong. You're you're only punishing players who've done really well to haul themselves out of the relegation zone. Manager has done really well to do the same, and of course the fans who've. Who've stuck? You know the fans who have stuck through Wigan through that horrible fall from from Grace um, from the moment they won the FA Cup. Is it, so? In what way is this? It's not really. You're not. You're not. You're not punishing the people who are doing potentially the things that are wrong. I mean, we don't know the ins and outs, and we don't know how much of this is deliberate and how much of this is cynical. So there's a caveat in that. But it does seem with Wigan, what has gone wrong has been. Um, it's been hard-nosed business talk and people thinking they've made possibly made a mistake. So why why would why do they care about why do they care about 
points deduction and what happens, what the long-term implications of that for that club. It, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And equally, why, why would you go around giving um, points deductions to clubs who, who were not able to cope with uh, football behind closed doors or truncated seasons? That, that makes no sense either. I think, they, I think football needs to rethink its, its uh, crime and punishment rules, to be quite honest, in the, in the light of, of COVID. But this, I have to reiterate, I don't, this is not, like Gregor said, using COVID with Wigan is, is, is an excuse. It's, this is not the reason they're in trouble at the moment. Although, if other clubs are in trouble, that probably will be because of the pandemic. It's a very difficult situation, obviously, that, that Wigan find themselves in right now. And the former Wigan midfielder, Ben Watson, who scored that winner in the 2013 FA Cup final you've just alluded to, Alison, has spoken to the Times today about his shock at the announcement. He said, I called one of my friends from the Wigan Athletic team to congratulate him for beating Stoke City. The win put them 14th in the championship table, unbeaten in nine games. Then the devastating news came. After the call, I heard about the club going into administration. My friend hadn't mentioned it, and I'm not sure how much the players were even aware of what was going on. All of this shows what the pandemic has done. For this to come out of the blue is such an eye-opener for everyone in football. Wigan may be the first, but they certainly won't be the last. Gregor, how on earth are the Wigan players going to handle this situation? Um, I've only been in it once when I was at uh, Rotherham United and, and I think it really the truth is it kind of creates a bit of a siege mentality. I would not be surprised to see Wigan surviving, although they you know, they've got a four point gap to essentially to make up now. And they've they have they have the best form of any team except Derby since New Year's Day. They were bottom of the table on on New Year's Day and since then I think only Derby have taken more points than them. So it's been a remarkable run. Um and I, like I say, I think really it kind of it focuses minds. It's like you you know you, you think to hell with them, to hell with everyone. We're going to try and we're going to try and pull off something pretty pretty remarkable here. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see to see Wigan do that. I mean, the, the, again, just to just to kind of reiterate again what Alison said and what what Ben Watson's saying here is it's that's on the face of it, it does look like yes, this is what. This is Wigan will be the first of many, and they might be because the the, the championship is the biggest financial basket case in the in, in England. Um, I think I think the average um, wages to to turnover ratio was one hundred and seven percent, and and Wigan's was was one hundred and sixty eight. Reading's was two hundred and twenty six. So for every hundred pound they earned, they spent two hundred and twenty six oh, on God. wages in the last uh, financial year. So that gives you an idea of how crazy it is. And it, uh, the thing is, it might, the COVID could be an excuse for some of these some of these people. And it, it, it is a tightrope. Alison's saying, you know, the crime doesn't fit the punishment, but, and there is a clause, there's something called a force majeure clause that allows Wigan to appeal uh, to a point sanction. But if a club was allowed to just go into administration, pay very little of their debts, Full full amount of their debts to to whoever they owe them to, and they wouldn't be punished for it. Then why would every club not do that? Because so so many clubs are spending extortionate amounts of money at the moment and losing huge amounts of money when there's no fans in the side of the stadium. So it's very difficult. Um, but I would say that the players actually will um, they will almost be galvanised by this, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Wigan stay up despite it all. Mm. Well, Wigan, a story we will continue to track for you here on the Game Podcast, as well as, of course, at the Times as well. That is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Alison as well. Remember, you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Monday on the Game Podcast. Stay safe and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. 
As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.